Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers. And most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. The human sacredness and value of people, that Betzalem Elohim is always destroyed when we accommodate our our theology to these social constructs. Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast. Today we're going to explore the question, how important is it that Christians sort of stand our ground on the idea that Adam and Eve were actual people who lived in history? This is something that there's a lot of debate about right now. Of course, there are views like theistic evolution, where Christians are taking the view that maybe it's not as important to view Adam and Eve as historical people, or if we view them as historical people, they were just one of possibly many. Uh, But this idea of special creation, God creating Adam from the dust of the ground and Eve from Adam's side, how important is it that we take this literally? I'm going to talk with an expert today. Dr. J.R. Miller has more than a decade of experience in teaching and 20 plus years of pastoral ministry. And this is supported by just a really diverse uh, educational background. He's, He's got a background in science and theology, philosophy, and ethics. So he's able to to look at certain topics from lots of different angles. And so currently he's the president and co-founder for the Center for Cultural Apologetics and campus director for Rasho Christi. He's authored multiple books on church history, biblical theology, and leadership. So Joe and his wife, Suzanne, enjoy the sun and surf with their three sons in San Diego. So beautiful. Joe, it's great to have you on the show today. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I've uh, enjoyed your show for a long time and been watching you uh, take on some really good issues. So I'm glad to be a one of the uh, probably uh, you know many many people to come on your show talk about these critical cultural issues that are going on. Yeah, for sure. And and. I want you to start by telling us your PhD work because I think this is such a fascinating topic. Tell us tell us a little bit about that and then we'll dive deeper into today's topic. Yeah, one of the issues, you know, with with PhD thing is man, you got to really have a clear idea what you want to do and I for a long time struggled 
what do I even, what would I even care that much about to study for three, four or five years of my life that like, that, that, that I want to focus that much on it. And it was a few years back, really the, the confluence of a lot of issues came to bear. And I realized, I think one of the most important aspects of uh, that, that young Christians were facing, one of the things that were driving them away from faith was this idea of evolution versus creation. I felt like one of the things we were sacrificing often was the doctrine of Adam and Eve in that conversation. And I said, well, how do, why do people care about this? How can I m- help people care about biblical theology? Why does it even matter? Because I've always taught my students for ethics, you know, it doesn't matter if you have right theology. The question is, can you live that theology? Because right doctrine that can't be lived is still bad doctrine. Um, and so how do we live out the truth of Adam and Eve? If it's true, does it matter for our daily lives? And so that's where I kind of started to re- realize and see uh, you know, half dozen or so years ago, you know, the importance of race and, and how how polarizing that had become. And, and I felt like the church didn't have a great answer to the issue of race and racism. And so I kind of, those two things I felt kind of came together with the doctrine of Adam and Eve. And so my premise is that I think the doctrine of Adam and Eve provides us with the most coherent framework for making an argument against racism. And mm-hmm. when we get rid of that doctrine, whether it's the naturalist evolutionist, you know, that doesn't believe in God, or whether it's even the theisticness, I think they sacrifice a key component of a, of a comprehensive argument that says, yes, racism is objectively, transculturally, in all ages, in all civilizations, wrong. And I think Adam and Eve gives us the best way of saying that that is absolutely wrong in all those circumstances. So that's where I kind of came down. That's what it's been the last four or five years studying. Yes. Well, I'm excited to ask you more about that. But just to give some context for our listeners to this topic, you know, this is a topic, historical Adam and Eve, that became hugely important to me when I was in a faith crisis because uh, some of my friends were saying, well, it doesn't really matter how God did it. You know, if he used... Mm -hmm evolution or some kind of like Darwinian type of understanding of evolution. It doesn't really matter if, you know, God can do it however he wants. But it became very clear to me really early on as I began to think that stuff through that if you don't have a historical Adam and Eve, you know, Romans 5 starts to fall apart. You have even elements of the gospel falling apart. You have original sin going away, some sort of idea of the fall and the sin nature being passed down. All of that kind of goes away if you don't have a historical Adam and Eve, or at least uh, it becomes extremely problematic to explain. And um, so, you know, you mentioned, of course, the Imago Dei and how your work sort of coincides with historical Adam and Eve and that Imago Dei. Uh, Recently, I was invited to speak at the Wilberforce Weekend Conference, and the topic they asked me to speak on was how progressive Christianity redefines Imago Dei. And so this is Mm -hmm. a topic, Imago Dei and Adam and Eve, that I've been thinking a lot about because so much of the progressive theology is built upon a Darwinian understanding of evolution. And uh, Mm -hmm. it's very fundamental, actually, to progressive Christian theology. And so I love that you're doing some of your PhD work on this. And so let's just kind of lay a foundation as we start. Um, Just for someone who might not be that theologically inclined, what do we mean when we say Imago Dei? What is it? And why is it such a foundational Christian doctrine? 
Yeah. So Imago Dei, for folks who know, is just comes from the Latin, which means the image of God. And it's a theology uh, that really ties back to Genesis 127. In the Hebrew, you know, where we say, you know, God created man, his image, he created them, male and female, he created them. So this idea of in the image of God, in Hebrew, it's Betzalem Elohim. And it's this idea that humans, man, men were created by God in a way distinct from all other creation. We see just the plants and the, or the animals or the planets. They're all magnificent. They were all reflections of God's glory, but only humans reflected the image of God and were made in his image, Betzalem Elohim. And so because of that, man had a critical role uh, in not only caring for the planet and caring for the world, but caring for one another in this relationship with God, the idea of be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth. All these kinds that God gives that are repeated throughout scripture are tied to this idea that our unique relationship with God, reflecting his image and reflecting his glory is something that we need to propagate throughout our world. And, and where it ties in critically to this is this idea of how do we see one another despite perceptions of race or cultural ethnic division differences how are those perceived through the lens that i i see you alicia alicia i see you uh whoever is on the other you know the side of the conversation um how do i see you as somebody who's made Bethlehem in the image of god and how does that shape my cultural perceptions or misperceptions that often create these divides that god intended for us so what relationship does the historical Adam and Eve have with the doctrine of Imago Dei? And, you know, I guess sort of it's it's like a two-sided question here. Yeah. What, if Darwinian evolution were true, would that negate the doctrine of Imago Dei? Yeah, I think ultimately it does. And, and I think folks need to realize, too, because just like, you know, you had your own sort of journey to this. You know, I, I struggled for years, I think, you know, how much of this— can we just sort of say, okay, what if it matters if they were, you know, one of many or they evolved from lower hominids and they became human and God then planted in them some sort of soulish thing that all of a sudden, man, now they're in the image, you know, and uh, what does that do? And I th to the, to our perception of Imago Dei. And, and so for me, what I've come to realize over all the years of study is I think that uh, – it is the, the idea of what the Bible says of man, man and woman created in his image. If we evolve from these lower hominids, the nature of evolutionary thought uh, blurs that line of definition. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be created in God's image? Because it's an evolving standard. It's one that never is defined. Because what it means to be human thousands or millions of years ago in that framework, or what it means to be human a thousand years from now, is something completely different because it changes with our biological nature because biology determines uh, who we are or how we're perceived or, or what we can become. And so when you look at historically what happened with, you know, racial divisions and, and racism that was kind of came into the culture, it all became because there was not a clear understanding of what it meant to be human. And Darwin, subverted that capacity to give a fixed 
and clear transcultural definition of human. And when we lose that, we lose this sense of what does it mean to be made in the image of God. And so it becomes very critical for stabilizing our understanding of human personhood. So in the Darwinian paradigm, would there even be a mechanism to say that racism is wrong? No, and there really isn't. And that's the challenge. Um, Darwin really struggled with that. Darwin himself uh, was opposed to slavery. A lot of actually abolitionists who were opposed to slavery um, struggled with something similar to Dar that Darwin did. But that is, he believed that it was wrong to uh, brutalize African peoples in the system of you know chattel slavery. But his worldview didn't give him a foundation for, for arguing blacks had equal value or worth. He still viewed them as uh, subhuman, as lower species. Um, as a matter of fact, he traded in that uh, Eurocentric enlightenment worldview that, that, that saw Africanized, Africanized features as reflective of a lower evolved state. He used that to persuade people that his theory was valid. He, he traded in racist, racist tropes to say, hey, you know, believe my theory because it confirms all the stuff that you've already believed of the of, you know, Europeans over other non-European peoples. So he, he really struggled because he, on one hand, he wanted equality or at least the elimination of slavery, but he recognized that nature made, nature enslaved blacks to a lower evolved state uh, to some degree. So there's something that I learned recently. I did not know this uh, growing up. I never learned this in school, certainly. But um, I, I've heard this laid out, and I heard you talk about this with uh, Monique and Krista, our friends over at the All the Things podcast. Yeah. Um, and that's just where the whole concept of race came from in the first place. I wonder if you could sort of map that out for us, because a lot of people don't realize it's it's really more of a modern concept, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's actually the part that modern, uh, you know, we get right sort of today that race itself is a social construct. It's, uh, you know, it has biological connections with skin color or facial features, those sorts of things. We assign those features to certain racial groups, but that grouping, the way we group people is completely what's called a shared fiction. We've made it up. Uh, in the culture. And in the West, you know, kind of traces back to guys like Kant and Hume, uh, who started to see non-Europeans uh, as completely distinct racial types. Uh, I mean, and so, again, not to say throughout history, people have always made dif differences and distinctions. So, People have to understand that. But it wasn't based on this concept of race, which was new to the really 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries is when this concept really crystallized. So it started with these, you know, Enlightenment philosophers, and then it took a scientific, gr you know, ground through Darwin's uh, theory of animal to human evolution. And so once that sort of gave a scientific grounding to these philosophical viewpoints, then it became obvious, you know, to uh, 
people in the West that there were these distinct racial types. And, and Christian theology was just as bad through many of this too. People often understand there was many pre-Darwinian Christians who, who believed that um, there were separate creations. Sort of there's a separate Adam and Eve for the white people, a separate Adam and Eve for the black people, a separate Adam and Eve for the, the Asian people. Uh, and so they had these theories that God made these separate creations and that, mm-hmm. that explained these racial differences. So, but it all boils down to that Western concept of race, which was a, a modern construct and everybody trying to force their theology or their science to fit that, um, that really shared fiction of the culture. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought out how certain Christian ethnic groups would say, well, they had their own Adam and Eve and they had, where, where were they getting that from? Yeah, I mean, it goes back to really to the concepts of the different geographic regions of the world. In the 13th century, there were folks who were writing about how do we explain these different differences among people groups. Um, and so a lot of it was geographic. It wasn't racial in the sense of skin color, because you could have people of various skin colors within these geographic regions, and it was very much not related to skin color, but it was still recognizing that people are very different. And it used to be divided into three regions of the world. But then as we went through the 14th, 15th and explorers went, they started finding all these other parts of the, discovering all these other parts of the world that didn't fit those three. So then it became five. Uh, And so everybody's saying, well, how does, as we shifted away towards saying the Bible tells us less and less about the reality of the material origins, and we need to trust more observations of the world, as that shift started to take Case, we started to put more authority interpreting this through this lens of empirical observation. So when Christians started to do that, they started to develop these other theories about you know pre humans, uh, pre hominids that were were also human before Adam and Eve, or potentially other races that God created of humans that were outside of the the Garden of Eden. You know that just they assumed that because Europe had this these other peoples that the Bible could have known nothing of these other peoples. And therefore they had to re-explain the Bible through that discovery of European exploration. So if this was sort of a a cultural construct, so to speak, Mm -hmm. the the whole idea of race, what does the Bible have to say about race? What would, what would the Bible say that um, is going to either contradict that or, or give a, a different view on that? Yeah. Well, I think there's two key linchpins to this. And uh, the first one is historic Adam and Eve, the Imago Dei, the human, I I prefer the idea of human sacredness, that all of us are as opposed to human dignity or human rights even, because those are kind of squishy, gray terminologies. As a matter of fact, dignity is, is is a squishy term that really tries to replace in Christian terminology what the Bible talks about our human sacredness, that all people are made in the image of God and have sacred worth and value. So that's true, you know, throughout Old Testament time. And then we get to the time in Jesus. And that sort of idea of human sacredness is reaffirmed in the incarnation of Christ, his death and resurrection, because he died because we are all made sacred in his image. But that lent to a couple challenges for the New Testament church. Um, How do we deal with 
fractures and divide. And so nowhere in the Old Testament do we really talk about the concept of race because that's a modern construct. So, you know, that they knew nothing of that. But they did know about divisions among human people. Ethnic division was pretty much the same. The idea of nationality or, or geographic origin. But there is a word in the New Testament us. It's this word that talks about our kind, like kinds of fishes or kinds of peoples related to their origins. And these are all what we would equate to a social construct. And, and so the New Testament is pretty clear that these genos, these social constructs, as we would call them, are, were sources of division in the church. And every culture has those kinds of divisions. And so the idea that, that what Christ has done us is makes our gospel superior to those constructs because now we have a divine construct that isn't based on culture. It's, trans, it's based on the transcendent nature of who God is and the transcendent nature of who we are. And so we can rise above those things like race. And so the short end of that is that I believe the only way ultimately that we can eliminate racism is to eliminate the construct of race from our Christian theology. That mm -hmm. is, we, we have to acknowledge racism is real. The consequences of that construct are devastating. But the way to eliminate racism is to eliminate use of that construct in how we treat people and go back to a biblical frame for, for doing that, both in Imago Dei, the idea of Betzalem Elohim, and through the work of Christ on the cross. That's good. Okay, I want to get into the topic of eugenics. So this mm. is something that I think a lot of people in America may not realize is so deeply embedded in our history. I know I didn't realize that until I heard your interview on the All the Things podcast, and it was really eye-opening and kind of mind-blowing to learn about uh, how this sort of Darwinian paradigm of evolution, this um, sort of, you know, negation of a historical Adam and Eve, or I should say a denial of a, of a historical Adam and Eve, the sort of practical effect that ideas like that can have in, in something that arose called eugenics. So, so give us a, mm -hmm. a basic definition of what eugenics is and maybe a little bit about its history, especially here in the United States. Yeah. So eugenics really boils down to it kind of means good breeding. So we're breeding things to become better. And so we have to realize that um, in Darwin's view, just like we would breed uh, dogs or cows to have a higher value or quality, you know, if so you want your best beef or your sheep or whatever it is, we, would, we could domestically breed animals. He said, he used that as an analogy. He say, well, nature has bred humans for survival. Um, and it's not necessarily that uh, all hu that makes some lesser or worse in value, like purely on a hierarchy, but some are certainly more fit to survive given the environmental conditions. And so we, nature has bred us this way. Well, eugenists said, hey, well, if nature, if our biology determines our fitness to survive, we have science and science can help us shape, uh, you know, cooperate with natural selection and we can help determine our genetic fitness for survival. Well, if all of our survival is genetically determined, our value is genetically determined, if everything it comes down to our biology, then we have to recognize that some people are biologically 
inferior and some people are biologically superior, better capable of surviving. So just like we can, they used to actually have contests back in the 20th century uh, that they would go, you know, like you go to a 4-H event and you have the sheep pens and you have the cow pens and they give the blue ribbon award to the fittest, you know, the healthiest Holsteins, the healthiest, you know, whatever it is. They those contests for families and they bring their families in and they give blue ribbons for the fittest families and they have charts, you know, how many from these illnesses and we could eradicate these illnesses and we can do all these things if we choose to breed better people. And so eugenics boiled down to two things. There was positive eugenics and negative eugenics. Positive eugenics was sort of your things like uh, birth control, uh, choosing the right healthy mates you want to give birth to. Uh, negative eugenics was uh, forced government sterilization. Uh, it was the it was taking writing laws or policies that forced people to uh, choose their mates to breed with uh, uh, in a better way so that we could produce a healthier uh, peoples. And so those are what it really boils down to and had a million, million directions we can go. I know you read some stuff, you know, where we could talk about both for, and understand both Christians and non-Christians. Christians used to have contests on who could preach the best eugenic sermon. Uh, and so Christian theology, when it adapts itself to these social constructs is always, always diminished and the human sacredness and value of people that Bethlehem Elohim is always destroyed when we accommodate our theology, our theology to these social constructs. Mm. And so we can historically, which is why I worry about this kind of stuff today, which is happening in progressive Christianity, they think in the name of compassion, they're helping by rewriting their theology to suit the culture. But historically, this always leads to dehumanization. And that's my biggest concern. But there's some of those, you know, that's the framework mm. for eugenics, at least. And we can take that wherever you like. Yeah, just so many thoughts. You know, I, I <laughs> guess my main thought I'm thinking right now is when you mentioned, you know, the blue ribbon for the the fittest family and all of this. To us, that sounds so shocking. It's like you just want to shake your head and go, how could people have done this? But I'm sure there will be things that 200 years from now, people will look back on us with shaking their head yeah. going, how could they have done this? And then, of course, you mentioning Christians even having competitions to see who could preach the best eugenics sermon. What Obviously, Darwinianism is in there, but what was going on in culture that made that so normal, that made that just seem to be—what what was it that caused Christians in that time to say, hey, we've got we've to come up with these eugenic sermons? Like, yeah. do you, and I know you kind of said it's like just yeah. sort of mar trying to marry theology to culture, but maybe you could expand on yeah. that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, Christians then face exactly what we do now. It's the culture telling them that belief in their in, in the Bible is outdated. Belief in the Scripture is authoritative for not just our knowledge of God, but for the way we should live our life is outdated. It's outmoded. Uh, science tells us a better truth about reality. Uh, you know, and so they were competing with those same challenges. They wanted to have a faith that was accepted and acceptable to the world. And often it was very positively well-intended. Hey, we want to 
the gospel of Christ, but hey, they're shut off to us because of our crazy wild beliefs that God actually created, you know, the world and that God is the author of salvation, that miracles happen. All these sort of aspects become culturally acceptable. And they wanted to be accepted by the culture. And I, and I don't mean that in a disparaging way. I just mean that they, they wanted, for many, in their perception, they were saying, hey, I just want people to know who God is. How do I break through? Well, I can compromise X, Y, Z, and then I can still get to them to the point of Christ. And so the, I, even assigning the best of motives, what happened was that, that they said, hey, how do we interpret the text through this modern lens? Mm. Uh, it's, it's different than saying, how do we read the text and then apply it to a modern context? You know, since there's one meaning, many applications, we confuse today application with meaning. And now we say, how do we in- reinterpret the meaning so that it has application? Mm. And that's essentially the sort of the bait and switch that happened then. And that's what happens now. And so with eugenics, it was just this idea that, hey, well, Christians believe in compassion. Christians believe that you know suffering is wrong. Well, can't we eliminate suffering if we breed better humans? So this meshed with this passion to help and serve and care for people. So for them, that became their overriding thing that they said, okay, well, let's, we, can, we can agree with the world on this thing. And this, this has the shared goal of what we want to do is help the poor. Uh, well, uh, the best way to help them is to make sure there's fewer of them. So mm. let's just you know, adopt these sort of methodologies because we can. And I can't help but think about you know, if we put that in the context of today, we're doing kind of, I mean, the culture, our culture, our country, Mm -hmm. the world is doing the same thing through abortion, really, it seems to me. Uh, You know, uh, like I heard Krista mention this, and and this is something that I was thinking about too, when I was pregnant with my daughter, and you know, you're offered the test to Mm -hmm. find out if there are genetic anomalies and things just to, and my, I remember my midwife saying, then you can decide if you want to go forward with the pregnancy. And of course, for me, that it didn't matter what the test would have said. I didn't opt to have the test because it it just didn't matter. We were having the baby. Same thing, yeah. Yeah, and so, uh, but but that's so normalized in our culture. Like that is just something that you know. It's it again. Two hundred years from now, people might look back and go, "How crazy was that?" But I guess my question is, uh, and then I want to get into some specific examples of eugenics. But um, would it be fair to say that eugenics was a direct result of Darwin's theory? I, was that probably its main yeah. motivating factor? Is that mm-hmm. what caused the Christians to want to synthesize as well? Sure. Hey, before I answer that, I got to tell you, uh, first of all, I'm glad you had a midwife. Uh, I think midwifery is one of the best occupations in the entire world. Yeah. I just like saying the name only because yes, the name is midwifery. Cool. Yeah. It's if fun I, you to know, say with a British min- accent. Yeah. Uh, midwifery. <laughs> midwifery. It's such a great and exciting adventure. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and a flautist. It's playing the flute, a flautist and midwifery. Yes. Those are the best things yes. in the world. I just want to point that out. I can't let it go without saying that. You can cut this out later. No one has to no, hear no, that. No, no, it's anyway. staying. This is staying. Yeah, there we go. All right. Just, <laughs> my, just my two things. Okay. I love it. Uh, but yeah, so 
There's a debate about that in academic circles. You know, to what degree was eugenics a direct result of Darwin's theory? And you have, you know, people saying there's zero connection, some that's saying, well, it was, but it's only because even Darwin opened up to it, but only because Darwin didn't even understand his own theory fully. And others that say it's, you know, a one-to-one direct correlation. I would say this, that I think that uh, Darwin didn't like the, well, you know, the, the term eugenics didn't come till after he was gone. It was his, his cousin, Francis Galton, who actually coined that term uh, from, and he read his stuff. Uh, I, I think the theory of eugenics is wholly dependent on this Darwinian worldview. Uh, and what, you know, even if Darwin had some issues with that type of approach, uh, he didn't like the idea of trying to control natural, natural selection. So for example, with, when it came to blacks, he didn't think that blacks should be say, uh, you know, bred out of existence. Uh, but he felt that blacks eventually would be, uh, eradicated just natural selection. He believed that was the net nature was tending towards that. He just didn't think we should necessarily make it happen. Uh, but that was just his choice. His theory itself, his worldview allowed for eugenics to be a viable interpretation. That's the way I would frame it. Mm -hmm. I think eugenics is a viable, oh, completely viable, legitimate interpretation of Darwinian, the Darwinian worldview. Mm. And there's nothing inside that that can constrain that thing. You have to make a sort of a special pleading case outside of that to say, well, I oppose it, but so what? Why, why do you oppose it? What's your grounding? There is isn't within it to, to constrain that. Mm. So uh, I think it's natural that uh, that it fits within that. And I forget the second part of your question. I'm still distracted by the whole midwifery. Midwifery. Um, yeah. <laughs> midwifery. Midwifery. Uh, so, okay. Well, so I want to ask another question here. Um, and I'm kind of trying to decide which direction to go, because if I go this direction, I still want to swing back around. Um, but, okay, so let me ask you this. Regarding uh, Hitler and mm -hmm. the how they would euthanize, I mean, yeah. I, I, I forget the number, but even before they killed all the Jews, they euthanized, wasn't it like 70,000 or more of their own people who were elderly yeah. and, and handicapped in some, in some way, shape, or form? So... Is this what Hitler was was sort of gleaning from to to mm -hmm. do his evils? Yeah, there. I think the short answer is yes. Uh, Richard Weichart has done some amazing uh, on this. He's been written multiple books on this. Uh, uh, Hitler's religion, Darwin to Hitler. Uh, I'm really thankful one of the readers for my own dissertation, can I, helping me clarify some of my own thinking on this over the years. Um, so he's done some great work on that connection uh, to what what Darwin's how Darwin influenced both the scientists within Hitler's Germany and also uh, you can find you know plenty of people who are supporters of uh, Darwinian the Darwinian worldview who applied that. The second is there's um, a gentleman from Harvard. I can't think of his name off the top of my head. I can get you a link later. You can send it to your Patreon folks exclusively. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, but uh, he wrote a he wrote a book basically making the legal connection between the laws that Hitler employed for eugenic to American laws. Now he ignores that Darwin connection, but he said his, his point was, you know, the, the race laws in Germany were very much connected to a lot of the laws in the United States. Well, those laws were driven by eugenics and eugenics was driven by Darwin. So uh, although as a secular thinker, they try to insulate 
Darwinian worldview from that, it's pretty evident, I think, the evidence is coming becoming stronger and stronger that, uh, yes, eugenics was a, a, a large inspiration to what Hitler did. And a matter of fact, the eugenists in the United States, you can find many who were envious of what Hitler was accomplishing mm. in terms of racial purity. They were would write amongst themselves and discuss how, man, I wish we had the ability to pass some of the laws that Hitler was passing here. Uh, and so what happened, though, was, I mean, this is kind of just a little side trail here for you, just after it was really discovered what Hitler was doing, and there was this world sort of reaction, oh, this is terrible. The eugenists in the United States said, okay, well, this is a sort of a black eye in our name. Our goal is still the same. We have to sort of change our verbiage. And you can, I actually have read some documents where they talk about this idea of, this goes back to your abortion thing. We have to let people understand that this is their choice. We want them to choose these things. So they started to emphasize a woman's right to choose. Mm. And that language is a direct result of discovering what Hitler did, but it wasn't to change the mission of eugenics. It was just to change the palatability of it. We just have mm. to convince people that they want to cooperate with these eugenic goals. And mm. so it, it, it was... What happened in the U.S. definitely inspired uh, the folks in, in Hitler's Nazi Germany, and he inspired many people here. Uh, and it goes back and forth. Now, granted, there's a lot of influences outside of Darwin that we're not getting to, and so I don't want people to understand it's not it's not you know e that easy necessarily. But it certainly was a major factor and influence in the progress of what we see happening his happening historically. And it's fascinating to hear you say that they took that to make it into a positive, a woman's right to choose. And it seems like even today they're taking it that much further, even calling it reproductive justice. It's like yes. not just making it okay, but actually making it a justice issue. Yeah. And so I'd love if you could maybe unpack a little bit the history of abortion and its relationship to eugenics. Yeah. So obviously abortion has been around for thousands, as long as there's been human beings, there's been abortions, um, chemical abortions, medical abortions, uh, post-birth abortions, where in you know ancient Greece, they put children out to die. And I will say this, from the beginning, Christianity, one of the strengths of Christianity was the belief in the Imago Dei, the Spetsole Malachim, that, uh, that inspired the growth of the church. Matter of fact, you know, the Christians would rescue the infants from the garbage dumps. Uh, and this gave inherent value, recognizing the inherent value and worth the sacredness of these babies, not only protected those infants, but it also gave women a sense of rights and belonging. So women, the idea of women's rights, the protection of the sacredness of women was recognized that the early church gave women a very safe uh, environment we call a safe place, I guess you'd say today, mm -hmm. uh, because it gave them a sense of enduring value that the culture did not recognize because it devalued them as sort of baby machines. They were very mechanistically just sort of, you know, almost animalistic is, you know, what, what the, could they produce? And so this whole birthing process was always viewed by the Christians as a value and women could, this was a valuable part of being a woman and who women were, and they should be valued for that. So culturally, that shifted over a long time. And so, uh, but even in the 19th century, 
uh, we had uh, the idea of convenience that the children were an inconvenience was used by Protestants in the United States by Protestant women who participated in abortions, uh, and they were used it quite frequently uh, because it allowed them to continue their social life it, it, for the sake of you know their upward mobility or status in the society. They didn't want to have children. So even Christians uh, were participating in abortions and they had a theology in a sense that justified that uh, going into the 20th century. Uh, then you had, of course, with Darwin's idea and Darwin's worldview coming into play of in eugenics and this idea of good breeding, abortion uh, took on a scientific element that it didn't have before. And folks like Margaret said, uh, who was a supporter of eugenics, uh, believed that eugenics would uh, be, she believed in more positive eugenics than negative. She wasn't as much a fan of uh, the government, the forced uh, side of eugenics, but she did believe that people should choose to do that. But she described frequently the problems with, of course, blacks, uh, the problems with the, Asi the Asian problem on the West Coast, as she called it, as it was commonly called then. So she certainly believed that abortion would help eliminate these issues of inferior races of people uh, outbreeding the sort resources and sources that we had in the United States. And that was built into it. And finally, actually, even Planned Parenthood in New York finally has admitted this uh, just a month or so ago in an article oh. uh, after decades of saying that this is a radical conspiracy theory by Christians and they're just liars or whatever. There's enough evidence at this point and they can't anymore that 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 was certainly that racialized component that racialized hierarchy was a critical piece to her promotion of abortion mm -hmm. uh, and so it became institutionalized you know you talk about institutionalized racism abortion mm -hmm. was a, a strong form of institutionalized racism that took the science of racial hierarchy and built it into a system that allowed people to uh sort of uh promote this idea of good breeding. And so uh, the language changed over time uh, and and its use, uh, again, trying to persuade people that, hey, this is just a positive choice. Uh, there's a lot of influences. So even today, though, this idea that it's a woman's right, it's a woman's choice, and all these sort of things, women's, you know, woman's health issue, all these are so words that are used to soften the idea that of what eugenics, the eugenic goal really is. Uh, and so that's definitely built into the, it's baked into the system. And I don't think mm -hmm. you can get outside of that system. Uh, mm. And Christians need to realize that we are dehumanizing uh, the, the unborn for the sake of a woman's right. And so uh, the idea that somehow it's her right to take a life, a human made in the image of God is really problematic. Mm. I want to swing back around to, you know, we've sort of, uh, we referenced Christians preaching sermons on eugenics. You mentioned women, Protestant women, justifying their abortions theologically. And then, of course, I'm thinking about when, when you know, the Monkey Scopes trial and when that all sort mm -hmm. of happened and you have evangelicals sort of coordinating themselves off and then the theological liberalism rising up and unit, even Unitarianism in the United States in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, what Do you know, like, where this was happening in the church? Like, you mentioned Protestant women. Do you know mm -hmm. what denominations? Were they mainline Protestants? Were they— uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. So this was more like the progressive Christianity of the day that was— 
It was in yeah. everywhere. I mean, you can have it in 1973, um, the president of the Southern Baptist, uh, or actually 72, right before, it was just right before uh, Roe v. Wade was decided. There's a, there, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention made clear that they believe that women should have the legal right to an abortion mm. and included things for not just the mother's physical life, but also for her emotional, psychological well-being that, uh, and, and you have the, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention at the time saying, uh, you know, that, that he's always long believed that, a that, a a baby wasn't a human fully person until after they were born. So you had main Protestant denominations who agreed that, that, uh, a, a baby was not a, a person until mm. after they were born. So this was not uh, isolated to just just progressive. Right. Just, uh, well, it wasn't just let's put it this way. Progressivism influence ha had influence that went across many denominational lines that we would today associate with conservatism. Yeah. And I wonder too, I'd have to look back at the history of it, but I wonder too, if that was one of the things that was sort of pre the conservative resurgence in the Southern Baptist, it was. you know, so this was like when they were kind of drifting. Um, that's interesting. Very interesting to me. Yeah. The conservative resurgence in the seventies and then the eighties um, sort of mesh that sort of political with theological conservatism. Um, and that certainly came post those decisions. Uh, I don't think it's as quite, uh, some people have argued that it's, it was all a political maneuvering on the part of conservatives to gain political power. I do think there was a genuine theological concern about that drift that had taken place, but For they sure. did realize the need to marry that with some sort of political power so that they could make sure that the drift wasn't uh, put into more laws that would harm people. So, uh, but yeah, that's, that's yeah. about the time it started to take place. Okay. So when we think about Christians trying to synthesize their beliefs with the Darwinian paradigm of evolution or, or some type of Darwinianism. Yeah. Uh, today we see that manifest through theistic evolution. We have a lot of, and, not, and they're not all progressives either. There, there are people who are really mm -hmm. holding fast to gospel essentials like the atonement and things like that that are saying, mm -hmm. well, you know, it, it, it doesn't really matter if Adam and Eve existed historically. Yeah. Um, what would be your concern about how that's going to play out practically, both from what we've seen in history before and what you know theologically, scientifically. Um, I'm, I'm assuming because your work is on maintaining yeah. that belief in it, his work, Adam and Eve, you're going to say you disagree with the theistic evolutionists, which I do as well. Um, but, but why is that so important? Yeah. Wow. There's so many directions. I'll tell you, when I started this, the argument that I'm making has not really been made uh, comprehensively before as I'm putting it together. And I wasn't even sure that I could even make this argument that I'm trying to make, that that historic Adam and Eve provides the most coherent uh, foundation for the argument against racism. Um, but the more I've studied, the more I'm really actually convinced that the argument is, is right. Uh, and it took me, it's taken me a lot of study to, to kind of get to that point. So I want people to understand this is not, my work that I've done in this, uh, you know, I recognize, man, I might have to restart this a couple of years into this adventure because mm -hmm. maybe I'm wrong. Uh, but I've, I've actually become more stalwart in my conviction about the historic Adam and Eve because of the ethical and moral consequences of sacrificing that belief. I see the potential historically of where we are heading in the future. And the example, I used in, in my work uh, is really through a study of transhumanism, mm. which basically is the idea 
of, hey, if, if evolution from animal to human is true in the past, then humans are becoming something new in the future. Uh, it, and ultimately what that means is it destabilizes the definition of what it means to be a person. And because the definition of human person is given no, it's, it's devoid of any stable structure. Even the idea of human, you know, being made in the image of God is sort of a, a moving target because the image of God is always being modified. It's always, we're growing into the image of God. Mm. So therefore in that, in that idea of when we transcend our humanity, that's what transhumanism is, you know, transcending humanity. When we move, rise above what we are now, there are all the obviously going to be people who are, haven't transcended as far as others. So it leaves open naturally this idea of hierarchy being built into those systems. So anytime you have a system that destabilizes, and by definition, and, and there's people that argue this, yes, there is no transcultural, transcendent sort of ontological, if you allow the philosophical term, definition of what it means to be a human person. That's always changing. And of course, they theologize that by saying, well, that's what God is. We're, we're becoming what God has wanted us to. And they take passages like Paul, you know, talking about, you know, we're, we're always being renewed in our mind. But those always assumed a stable definition in the stable by way of God's creation, you know, that we were made in God's image and that, yes, we're being transformed, but it always in the sense of we are still what a human person. We are always what God has made us to be. Uh, but they take that to mean we go beyond human. And so I think you, the door to that is both logically, philosophically, scientifically open. And I don't know that there's a way to close that door outside of the framework of accepting, you know, Genesis 1, 27 as a literal historical Adam and Eve are the progenitors of all humankind. I don't think that view is unscientific by any stretch. And I don't think it's anti-philosophical. I don't think it goes against anything that we would say is reasonable. Uh, and so... I think it's critical to hold on to that. If somebody were to say, hey, science has actually disproved a historic Adam and Eve, like this is just an archaic belief we need to get rid of because yeah. science has proved it wrong, what would your response to that be? Yeah, it's, well, I, I mean, in a nice conversation, I'd get there slower, but for you and I, I'd just say they're wrong. I mean, <laughs> they don't understand the science. Uh, matter of fact, the, the people that made that are just uh, three years ago, four years ago, uh, Dennis Venema and Scott McKnight made that argument in the, um, uh, sir book, the, uh, what is it? Uh, this, in their book about Adam and Eve, I'm trying to blank on the name right now, but essentially that, you know, that, that there's Venema had said, Hey, science has proven there's no possibility of a founding pair for all humanity, that kind of thing. And later within a few months, he had to retract that statement mm. on some forums and some discussions, but the case is well overstated in the book. So you have, yes, people that will write that in their books, these populist books that are written for consumption will make that assertion. But if you read the academic literature that's behind it, even these same scientists recognize now it's not that clear cut. Uh, you can't eliminate the possibility of historic Adam and Eve um, through that. Uh, that's why you got guys like Joshua Swamidas who are trying to sort of split the proverbial baby with his theory, which I, I find equally uh, unsatisfying, uh, trying to hold on to historic creation with theistic evolution. Um, it, it sort of shifts the goalpost, but it doesn't really solve the real problem. Um, so, yeah, I would say one, it doesn't match. 
but I also, I think Christians have to be careful how we frame our discussion. And I've had to, this has taken me again, years to kind of refine my own thinking. I don't believe that biblical creation, special creation is what I prefer to call it. You know, the idea of historic Adam and Eve. I don't believe that that is, stands in opposition to evolution per se. Evolution, if we mean it to take limited common descent, that is things change over time. That's the other piece of that. So, you know, yes, finches can adapt to in their environments like Darwin observed. Uh, humans today don't look exactly like humans did 2000 years ago. We adapt environmentally, geographically. You know, what, that's why we have, you know, African, Africanized features in, you know, for uh, blacks in Africa. And we have Europe, Europe, European features for people in colder climates. But all that is built in diversity designed by God, not only to reflect his glory, but also to allow us to adapt environmentally to the changing world that he created. So there's nothing wrong with this idea, if, if we mean by evolution that things change over time and that there's this limited common descent, you know, sort of cats are related to some cat family and some sort of genus level taxonomy, whatever we want to say about that. But if we look at the idea of chemical evolution, that biological life sparked magically from chemicals, and if we look at the idea of animal to human evolution specifically, universal common descent and descent with modification, those two aspects of evolution are not clear in the literature. Matter of fact, those are constantly being revised. There is zero agreement amongst Darwinian evolutionists of the mechanisms that would spark that kind of change. And they have even now competing theories. You see headlines. We need to rethink our theory of how we're doing this. We need to revise it. We need to reinvent what Darwin thought. Well, of course, they're going to hold on to the worldview that Darwin had, that animals evolved into humans. But the science is continually being evolved and changed to match the evidence, which just simply doesn't support the worldview. And so I'm actually more stalwart about that than when I started this study after years of reading a lot of the scientific literature uh, because of the disagreement amongst scientists about those things. So there's no shame in holding on to what the Bible teaches on this issue. That's good. Well, in a moment, we're going to continue this conversation for our Patreon supporters. If you want to go to patreon.com slash Elisa Childers, you can check out the different tiers. You can get early access. You can get uh, access to exclusive bonus content, which is what we're about to record, where you actually get to ask the questions. There's a tier you can select to be a part of a Patreon-only Facebook group, and it's in that group that we get the questions for our bonus content with our guests. So it's just sort of like a little after-party backstage hangout that we do for a few minutes for Patreon supporters. Yes, Joe's excited. So, um, Joe, as we close out this portion of our discussion, uh, what what word would you leave us with? I know people, there's so many crazy ideas out there in the world, I mean, about so many of these things that you've talked about from a philosophical angle, a theological angle, scientific mm-hmm. angle, and I know Christians are just trying to find their bearings and what, you know, we want to learn from history. We don't want to make the mistake of just trying to synthesize our faith with what's popular in culture right now, because as we've seen before, that can have devastating effects on Mm -hmm. not just on life and on people, but on our spiritual lives. Uh, What word would you leave our viewers and listeners with to encourage them? Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, maybe like, what's what's the things we should plant our feet on? And what are the hills to die Mm -hmm. on? What are not the hills to die on? What encouragement can you leave us with? I'd, I'd say to people, look, you know, doctrine matters. 
if history mm. teaches anything, biblical doctrine matters. Our theology, what we build around that doctrine, yes, we can change and we have to understand that we can be mistaken in some of those theological conclusions we make based on that. But fundamental biblical doctrines, such as historic Adam and Eve, ha have sig great significance and profound significance for the way we live out our faith Today, this idea of Betzalem Elohim is so critical. I've come to realize as the center of so much of my research over the last six years specifically. I've always sort of said, that's eh, true, but maybe I can fudge on this. But the more I dig into it, the more I realize that it has ethical implications for the way we live, the ethics we live out, the way we treat one another, the way we value one another. So if you want to stand for uh, against racism, if you want to stand for equality, I believe that you need to stand firm on the doctrine of Adam and Eve as the founding couple of all human beings. I believe that that is fully compatible with the best scientific evidence. I believe philosophically it's defensible with the best, uh, you know, ideas of what it means to be a human person. And I believe theologically, historically, it matches with what the church has taught and what the, I believe what the scripture reveals is the critical nature of that doctrinal belief. And so, you know, to young people who are really passionate about those issues of, of of race and life and justice. This is this, the belief in historic Adam and Eve is, is that hill to die on. I'm more convinced of that today than I ever have been my whole life. Uh, where I wouldn't die on is the age of the earth issues. I don't think, I don't think that's the intent of Genesis to give an age thing. I've studied with young earth creationists. I've studied and teach with, you know, old earth creation folks. I think there's great people in both camps. Don't get me wrong. I think there's bright people in both places. And I think they're, let them make those arguments that they yeah. want to make uh, and let them be weighed. But I don't think somebody who's old earth or young earth is by nature undermining biblical authority or diminishing the value of scripture. Uh, I think that's an in-house debate that we as brothers and sisters can have and still value and love and respect one another uh, without making ad hominem attacks of intellect or faithfulness to the gospel. But the doctrine of Adam and Eve, the idea of ex nihilo creation, I think those, both young earth and old earth people share those two yeah. fundamental doctrines. And I think that the historically we can show those are, those are valuable to our faith. So that's what I kind of, the short version of where I come down on those things. And I hope people will, will start to have a little bit better relationship with how we deal with one another that's on good. those issues and have a common front. Yeah, well, that's really well put, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, please click subscribe and click that bell icon to find out every time we release a new video. If you're listening on audio platforms like Google, Spotify, iTunes, it always helps if you leave a great review. If you found out about this podcast on social media, give us a like and a share, maybe leave a comment. All of that helps kind of tune those algorithms to, to give us some help to get this into the news feeds of more people. So thanks so much for watching today and we'll see you next time. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. 
Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.